This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither life, height, nor depth, nor any. For I am persuaded neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning. Father, we pray that as we continue our study on the importance of evangelism and especially missions, we pray that you would give us a greater vision for taking the gospel and supporting those who do take the gospel throughout the world. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the midst of a study coming out of our study in Third John. Focusing on missions. I want to make sure you understand how we are getting to missions out of 3 John. In 3 John, verses 4, verses 5 and 6 and 7, John praises Gaius because of what he has done for the brethren, that is, for known believers and for the strangers. These are not unbelievers, but traveling evangelists and missionaries who were coming through the area where Gaius lived. And these have borne witness of your love, John writes, before the church. Those whom you send forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you are doing well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. The emphasis here is on praise for Gaius, because out of his love for God, personal love for God the Father, therefore he understood the Great Commission, which we'll study this morning, and the importance of evangelism and missions, that these traveling or itinerant evangelists or missionaries would come through his area, and he was providing a place for them to stay. He would uh, provide uh, lodging for them, meals for them, and he made sure that when they left, they were well taken care of. And this sets an example for believers down through history that we should be hospitable. We studied the doctrine of hospitality two weeks ago, that this is something that any believer can do. You don't have to have any kind of leadership position in the local church. You don't need to teach Sunday school. It doesn't put you out other than you need to have a good uh, clean room and bed for a guest to stay in and provide meals for them. If they need to have clothes washed or anything else taken care of, you can do that. It emphasizes the importance of hospitality and that believers should be hospitable, ready to put up uh, uh, other believers and help them, especially those who are traveling missionaries and evangelists. This takes us to a whole new area of discussion, and that is the importance of missions, because the extension of that doctrine of hospitality is the support of the local church for missionaries and evangelists. 
Last time we began a study of this, and to do that, I wanted to begin with a definition of missions. What is missions? So we began by uh, using the definition that missions is really a sending authorized and trained people to communicate the gospel and to teach the word of God and the whole realm of Bible doctrine beyond the cultural border of the local home and church. It is not necessarily transplanting a culture. The culture you are transplanting is the culture from the Word of God. So the mistake that was made by uh, 18th and 19th century European missions too often was that they were taking their too much of their culture with them and imposing that on another culture. But we have to also remember, can't be too critical, because much of the culture that they had which was what it was because of the influence of biblical Christianity. You see, what most people don't understand is that at the root of all culture, whatever the culture is, Asian culture, South American culture, Aboriginal culture, uh, whatever the culture may be, whatever the country may be, at the very core of that culture are views and ideas about ultimate reality, what we talked about in the first hour. Those views of ultimate reality automatically involve uh, value systems, what's right, what's wrong, how to treat other people, where we come from, who we are, all those elements of society that make up culture. Don't think of culture as sort of high culture in terms of the arts. Think of culture in terms of how people live on a day-to-day basis, how they relate to each other, what their value systems are, their laws, their politics. All of that make up the basic elements of culture. Now, what should define culture for a believer comes out of the Word of God. And so what we then begin to do is show that God, since Genesis 3, in the fall of man, has been involved in a program of counter-culture missions. Counterculture missions from the time of the fall, because at the instant of the fall, the earth suddenly came under the domain of Satan. He became known as the God of this age, the prince and the power of the air, and the earth became his domain. The thinking on the earth became known as cosmic thinking, from the Greek word cosmos, which has to do with an orderly, systematic approach to life. And what Satan is is developing in human history is a systematic, orderly approach to life that excludes God and God's value system as the foundation for everything in life. Therefore, he is developing his own culture. So whether you are talking about, let's say, a pre-Columbian culture in Central America, you're talking about a sub-Saharan culture in Africa, an Islamic culture in the Arab world or Asian world, a Buddhist or Hindu culture, all of those fit into the cosmic culture that Satan is promoting. And that is what the Bible calls worldliness. 
And the believer is called to not conform to the world, to the any of the cosmic cultures on the planet, but to be transformed by renewing our mind. So in one sense, we said last time, in a general sense, every believer is involved in this counterculture movement. Every one of us has a responsibility, but that comes under the category of being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We are all a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ and a representative of God, and as part of our ambassadorship, we are all supposed to be engaged in witnessing to some level or another. However, the subject that we're addressing here is not the general category of the ambassadorship of the believer, but it is the more specific technical category of the trained and chosen or selected individuals who make it their life's career, their life's calling, to take the gospel into some sort of cross-cultural context. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean into another country or another language. Therefore, I pointed out last time that historically this has been classified as home missions and foreign missions. And home missions would be would involve itself in, and historically has involved itself in orphanages, uh, campus evangelism, campus ministries, involved uh, various sorts of uh, what used to be called uh, soup kitchens and uh, homeless shelters for those who are without homes. Those kinds of ministries as well as uh, evangelistic type of ministries such as uh, Christian Christian camping, and all kinds of different types of ministry such as that would be classified as home missions. You'd have, um, the, like, for example, the American Board of Missions to the Jews was a home mission organization evangelizing Jews here in America. And then some of these organizations also get involved in foreign missions. For example, in campus, in campus organizations, you have Campus Crusade for Christ. And Campus Crusade for Christ started back in the 30s and 40s as a ministry on university and college campuses here in the U.S. But now you have uh, Campus Crusade branching out. They have ministries all over, all over the world, in Europe, in Asia. In fact, um, recently I learned from Jim Myers. Jim's been given the opportunity, or was given the opportunity about two months ago, I think, to speak at a campus crusade retreat up in the Carpathian Mountains where he was addressing two or three issues on salvation and some other things. And it was a time to train campus crusade workers in Ukraine. As a result of that opportunity, that one opportunity he had, he's been invited to speak to a a dozen different campus crusade groups throughout the country of Ukraine. So that really has expanded his ministry and given a lot of, of opportunities there. And that's all part of missions. What Normally what people think of, though, when they think of missions is foreign missions. And, of course, in order to get people to serve who are qualified to serve on either in either home missions or foreign missions responsibilities, you have to train them. So there have to be training institutions, and typically this has come under the guise of Bible institutes, uh, Bible colleges, and seminaries. 
And so I believe that it's important for a church as part of their missions program is to support a Bible college or seminary. As a matter of fact, I'm getting to the point where I think that is should be the first thing a church should adopt in terms of support on a missions program, in terms of building a philosophy. And that's part of where I'm going in our study is to help formulate an overall strategy, mission strategy for PCBC so that in the future when people come, and, and we have that occasionally, people contact us and they want to come through, address the church. They've got a, they represent some missionary organization or they're a missionary and they're, they're, they talk about, well, we'd like prayer and they do and they're legitimate and it's genuine and we all believe in the importance and priority of prayer. But they're also looking for people who will financially support the ministry, and that's fine and good because ultimately all ministries work on on finances, and God supplies for missionaries through the individual giving and financial support of believers like Gaius in the third John. So that's part of our responsibility. But there's so many needs out there, and with a small congregation like PCBC, how do we evaluate who we support and who we don't support? What's our priority system? Where's our values? Where are we going to put uh, our dollar, as one person put it, where are we going to get the most bang for our buck on the mission field? And we need to think about that. We can't just sort of randomly, haphazardly pick up people that are nice, who have a uh, pleasing, wonderful personality, but we should have a strategy. And I am becoming more and more convinced, and I've talked with some other doctrinal pastors. In fact, I was beginning to, uh, I just got to know a guy in Denver, pastor in Denver, and I was, we were exchanging email, and I mentioned some of the things that we were doing, and in one of his first or second emails to me, he said, I am convinced from what I have seen in the last year that we are in an incredible crisis in doctrinal churches in this country. And that's exactly what, where I've been headed in my own thinking the last three or four years because we have given very little thought to the future. Very little thought to the future. And and I think that there is something among evangelicals, because we believe in an imminent return of Jesus, that we think frequently about the fact, well, you know, when we look out on the world system, Israel's back in the land, and we think about all this, and we say out of one side of our mouth that we don't believe there are any signs of the of the times, and that the rapture is imminent, it could be next year, or it might not be for another hundred years. We really don't believe that. We think, well, it's probably going to happen in our lifetime, and that leads to a short-sightedness. And we need to build for the future, for our children, for our grandchildren. I bet Dave thought Jesus was going to come back before World War II was over with. You know, I know Dave. It didn't happen. Every generation has been like that. They thought the Lord was going to come back at, at any moment, and what they thought by that was probably in my lifetime. And then next thing you wake up, you're 65 years old, and, and uh, you've been diagnosed with a fatal disease, and you didn't give enough thought to the future. And we need to give thought to the future, and that's one reason Schaefer Seminary was founded. That's one reason Jim Myers is establishing a training institute in Kiev, and some of the other missionaries are doing the same thing because ultimately the goal of a missionary is to work himself out of a job so that he can train an indigenous workforce 
that can take on the leadership of that nation's church. But it really doesn't happen in a generation. It doesn't even happen in two generations. It takes years. If you think about the historical flow that produced the Judeo-Christian framework, the, the, the framework of theism that brought forth the concepts of freedom and liberty that influenced this nation in its in its foundation, it literally took 1,600 years to do that, to transform that that pagan, barbarian uh, European culture into that culture that came along. So it takes it takes hundreds of years and generations to truly change a culture. And I'm not talking about imposing uh, one nation's human viewpoint, sin nature-based culture on another nation's sin nature, human viewpoint-based culture. I'm talking about changing it from the inside out with the truth of God's Word. Well, last time we looked at this counterculture missions program that God had in the Old Testament, and we saw that it was uh, initiated in the garden. We traced it then through uh, Noah. We saw the collapse at the Tower of Babel, and then we saw God work through a particular people as he called out Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And there the key word is that his seed would be a blessing to all nations. Even though he was going to restrict his work to the Jews, it wasn't just for the Jew, it was blessing to all nations. And we saw how God impacted uh, Gentiles. Uh, Caleb was a Kenizzite. That was one example we looked at. We looked at some of the women in the Old Testament, uh, such as Ruth, the Queen of Sheba, who followed the pattern of coming to Israel to, to learn truth. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, Naaman, the Syrian, the uh, Zarephath widow that Elijah ministered to, and then the only example in the Old Testament of going out was Jonah, where God specifically told a prophet in Israel to go to a Gentile nation and take them the gospel. All the other examples followed the pattern of people coming to Israel. Here's Israel, and the idea was that they were to be a shining light of this cross-cultural ministry, and as people came to Israel, they would see the difference, and they would take the news of the gospel as it was preached in the Old Testament, that a Messiah would come, God would provide a Messiah, and all of the... Uh, signs of the Messiah, and they would take that back to their people. Israel failed in that. One of the ways God forced it to happen was through the fifth cycle of discipline, and the nation was scattered. As a result of the fifth cycle of discipline in, in uh, 605 B.C. with the first deportation, you had Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon. By 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, you had many more Jews that were taken to Babylon. And there they established a witness where? In a Gentile world. And Esther is a testimony to that. The book of Esther is, is one sample of that. 
But another example of that is that Daniel was made the chief of the wise men. And there was a particular clan of the Medes and the Persians, particular clan of the Medes, that were called the Magi. This was a racial ethnic clan of the Medes. And they had, from ancient times, seemed to master certain esoteric arts and mathematics. And uh, and they messed around with alchemy and some other things. And Daniel was made the chief of the Magi. He wasn't a traditional ethnic-born Magi, but because of his ability to interpret dreams and visions, uh, Nebuchadnezzar promoted him to be the chief of the Magi. Daniel witnessed. He explained the gospel from the Old Testament to the Magi. And those teachings were handed down through several generations. And then came a generation that saw that star in the heaven. And they remembered what Daniel had said. And there were believers among those, among the Magi, Old Testament believers. And when they saw that star, that's the group that headed west to Jerusalem following the star to see the birth of the Messiah. So we see how God throughout the Old Testament had a missions plan for taking the gospel to the unsaved Gentiles. He wasn't just focusing on the Jews. Well, that's where we ended last time. We got into the New Testament a little bit, into the Gospels, and we see that in, during Jesus' ministry, he initially had a message to the Jews. He told the disciples to take the gospel only to the house of Israel. He did not want... He excluded the Gentiles because it was a it was a a mission that was related to his uh, kingship of Israel. Well, once you get to Matthew uh, 12, where the Jews reject Jesus' messianic claims, then he began to began to include the Gentiles. It's not that the Gentiles weren't being saved because there were numerous examples of Jesus. Uh, ministering to Gentiles, the centurion, the uh, Syrophoenician woman, several others that he ministered to and that were saved. So it's not like he was excluding Gentiles from salvation, but that wasn't the thrust of his ministry. So that by the end of his ministry, the focus is now shifted from a theocentric kingdom of Israel where people would come to get the gospel to where Jesus is going to establish a new body called the church and the mission, that countercultural mission, is going to be the church taking the gospel out. The church taking the gospel out to the world. And this is what is described in the book of Acts. And before we get there, I want to look at these passages where Jesus announces this new mission. It wasn't, it's not just the Great Commission in Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20. I want you to start by looking at the Gospel of John, verse tw- chapter 20, verse 21. John 20, verse 21. This is when, right after the resurrection, it is the same day, it is the evening, that first day of the week, it is that evening, Jesus appears to the disciples. 
And in verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, we have to put this together with what we'll we'll see in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus then, 40 days later or 30 days later before he ascends, 40 days later before he ascends, he tells the Jew, the, the disciples to stay put in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So here he is talking about the Holy Spirit. He, I mean, he's talking about this commission. I send you. The Father sent him into the world. He's explained in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. So he is sending the disciples into the world. They are not to go into some kind of Christian conclave or monastery and just hole up. Their task is to take the gospel throughout the world. So let's look at another passage, Mark 16. Backtrack through the gospel, skip over Luke and go to Mark 16. Mark 16, 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, this is subsequent to that one night, that first night after the resurrection. Um, he appears to them, rebukes them because of their unbelief. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, that's a, the King James translation. And he's not talking about preaching to the dogs and the cats and the raccoons and the deer. He's talking about preaching to every human being. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Then in Luke, we have another expansion on that in Luke 24, 47, uh, and 48. Luke 24:47 to 48. Each of these passages adds a slightly different element to this mission. Luke 24:47 and 48. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Really, the word here is proclaimed. It is the word keruso which has to do with a pro- making a proclamation, which is a term I prefer. The term preaching is so loaded with a lot of Christian baggage today. Most people don't understand that the term keruso is usually associated in the Scriptures with the gospel presentation, whereas teaching, didasko, or katekuo, is associated with teaching or explanation of the truth, uh, that is, post-salvation truth. So preaching is not a form. See, we've got a thing in this in our world where we think of preaching as a certain uh, oratorical style. And that's not what it meant in the early church. In fact, that has really caused more problems than anything else. Preaching is simply uh, announcing the gospel. That's what preaching was biblically. That repentance and remission of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So that's their starting point. And then we come to the passage that everyone goes to to start off uh, talk on missions, and that's Matthew 28. But if you notice, Matthew 28 isn't the beginning. The beginning is in Genesis 3.15, as we saw last time. 
This is just the development of it into the church age. Verse 18, we're told what our authority base is. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because he has authority, we have authority. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Since he is with us always, and all authority has been given to him, then we have that same authority everywhere we go. So many Christians are so afraid to uh, witness, to give the gospel. They're nervous, they're scared, they're intimidated by whatever, and yet we have Christ with us, and he's been given all authority. We have the authority to take the gospel throughout the world and to challenge the, the, the devil's cosmic system with the truth of God's word and the truth of the, of the gospel. Now, if we look at verse 19, it's translated go as if go is an imperative. Actually, in verse 19, the only imperative verb is the verb to make disciples. And the word disciple really means a student, a learner. A disciple isn't necessarily equivalent to being a believer. Simply, I mean, you, the terms aren't interchangeable. A disciple is a believer, but not all believers are disciples. Uh, a disciple is a learner, someone who wants to study the Word, someone who wants to grow and mature as a believer. And notice the command isn't simply restricted to evangelism. It's not make believers. It's not witness. It, it goes beyond that to make learners, to in all the nations to challenge them to grow to spiritual maturity. Now it begins, the verse that is, begins with a participle, uh, peruomai, which means to travel or to go. And in this particular structure, you have an aorist participle that precedes an aorist imperative. Now this is the fun part of getting into Greek grammar. When you have this kind of a structure where you have an aorist participle that precedes an aorist tense imperative mood verb, then that has a particular import. First of all, aorist tense is normally a simple past tense in Greek, but when and it's in a, either a participle form or an imperative mood verb, the emphasis isn't on time, it's on what they call aspect. So it has to do with, with um, uh, punk, what they would call punctiliar aspect. And, and th- you have three different aspects in Greek. You have a long range, continuous aspect. You have a punctiliar aspect. And then you have perfective aspect, which is completed action in the past. So aorist tense is, is sort of a punch. It's not really something that just occurs once. It's just summarizing everything up into one action and then just drives it home with this solid knockout punch. And it's used in an imperative for to emphasize priority. If you have a present imperative, that emphasizes this continuous idea and that standard operating procedure. But when you have an aorist imperative, that emphasizes the priority of the action. Now, when you have an aorist participle preceding an aorist imperative, the aorist participle gives you the 
prerequisite for fulfilling the action of the imperative. They had to go before they could make disciples of all the nations. They couldn't do it sitting back in Jerusalem. They had to go. And because of that, this this prerequisite notion that the aorist participle has, it picks up an imperatival idea from the from that imperative mood verb. So I've heard debates all my life over this passage that some have tried to make it a a temporal participle while you are going. In other words, as you go through life, while you are going through life, while you go about your day-to-day business, make disciples. And I'm sure you've heard it taught that way too many, many times. That's not the point here. The point is that it, it really is accurately translated with an imperatival sense, but the imperative emphasizes the prerequisite to the action. They needed to leave Jerusalem. They needed to go somewhere. There was an extension of the ministry to move out and to go into the world and to take the gospel. And they were to make disciples. That involves two things. That involves evangelism and teaching. Not just proclamation of the gospel, but also teaching the word in depth. The only way you're going to see people transform their own culture is to teach the word in depth. And my philosophy is to teach the word at a level that's just a little bit over your head. Because you don't learn to swim in water that's knee deep. But if you'd raise that water level up to you just can't quite get your nose above water, then you're going to have to figure out some way to swim. And I have always been challenged in my life, done better in classes where the the level of the instruction was just a little bit over my head and I had to step up to it than to go into a class where everything was real, very simple and was just sort of spoon-fed to you. There was no motivation there whatsoever. So I try to keep things a little bit over everybody's head so they have to reach for it. And that involves motivation. My personal philosophy is I don't want people in my church who don't want to learn and grow. And I'm going to scare off people by my teaching. If they want to come here and feel good and uh, get a little rhythm going from the music and just have a good time and go home and say, oh, wouldn't it good to, to hear about Jesus this morning? Well, they're not going to last very long around here. We have to make students of people. Make learners of people. That's the goal. It is a transformation of the thought process. And it doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen in a day or two. It doesn't happen once a week, twice a week. It's a lifetime commitment. And sooner or later, we all come to a point where we realize, or we should come to a point where we realize, that I'm not going to get anywhere in life I'm not going to get anywhere in the spiritual life until I make God the highest priority in my life. You know, we all go through life. We all have distractions. We all have all kinds of things we can do. We all have all sorts of hobbies and interests and things that can keep us away from the Word. But when it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to matter is what we got from the Word, what got into our soul, and how our soul was transformed by the Word, by doctrine. And when it's all said and done, it doesn't matter how much fun you had. It doesn't matter how much you enjoyed your hobby. It doesn't matter 
how much rest you got or how much entertainment you enjoyed, how much traveling you did. What matters is how much of the Word of God got into your soul and changed your thinking so that you thought biblically. That's the only thing that matters. And that's the only thing that we're going to take with us. When it's all said and done and we either die or are raptured, the only thing we take with us is the doctrine in our soul. And it's going to be amazing how many believers are shocked and surprised at how spiritually naked they are when they hit heaven because they kept saying, well, next year we'll finally get our schedule together and we'll be able to make Bible class on Wednesday night. We'll be able to make it to church on Sunday and and uh, maybe listen to some tapes during the week. And the next year comes by and they're still not getting to class but on an erratic basis. And if you keep doing the things you've been doing and haven't had success, then you're going to continue to not have success. And until you get it figured out that the number one priority in life is a spiritual priority, uh, you will continue to have those same problems and those same failures. We are to be making disciples. Now, when we think about this in terms of missions, I think one of the, one of the problems that you get in, in missions, and talking about missionaries, is you often have missionaries come back and you'll hear people say, well, you have to have the calling to be a missionary. I don't believe so. I don't think there's such a thing as a call to be a missionary. If you have the gift of pastor, teacher, evangelist, if you even have the gift to be an, of, of leadership or administration, God can put you anywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're in Connecticut or Texas or California or Bangladesh or Nigeria or J- Japan or Kiev or Kazakhstan or wherever it is. You go where you can serve. There's no special calling to one particular geographical area. Now, there are, there, there are times when God does call a specific person to a specific area, but that's not true for everyone in every situation. The issue is how can you best serve God in terms of your own particular spiritual gift? Now, that doesn't mean everybody is, I'm not pounding the pulpit here to say everybody ought to just pack their bags and let's go somewhere. I'm not saying that at all. But there are those who need to seriously consider that, especially young people. It has been a personal aggravation and irritation of mine when I run into men who are 35 or 40 or 45 years old with two two or three kids and a wife, and they say, well, I've got the gift of pastor, teacher, but I'm trying to figure out how to get seminary and how to get some training. Well, the train left that, the train has left that station, buddy. It's too late and you blew it. And part of the problem is we're not challenging young people with the fact that this is a legitimate, lifelong occupation that you should consider. This is something for every young person to consider. That doesn't mean that that everyone ought to do it, but you need to start thinking about it when you're 17, 18, 19, 20 years of age and not when you're 40, 42, 43, or 44. Now, if you're in the military or some career where you can take early retirement, then do so and you might have a second shot at it, but that doesn't happen to too many people. But that consideration needs to come in somewhat early 
in life so that you can get the proper training, so that you can go to college, so that you can pick up the right kind of courses in your undergraduate work, go to seminary, get the right kind of training, learn foreign languages. Parents, one of the great things you can do is to get your kids involved in learning a second language when they're about two years old. And who knows how that's going to be. I mean, if nothing else happens, at least they're going to have a little expanded job opportunity when they get to be 21 or 22 because they they'll be bilingual. But who knows, they may have an opportunity to go on the mission field and to serve the Lord in the area of that second language when they get older. So we need to be thinking about the fact that this is something that is a quality decision in life. Too often Christians get the idea, well, they're a missionary because they really couldn't do anything else. You know, it's sort of like, you know, those who do, those who do, those who can do and those who can't teach. Well, that's absurd. That demeans the occupation of being a teacher. And the highest calling in life is to be, from God, is to be a pastor and to, and to serve the Lord as a, because that's what a missionary is. They're either serving as an evangelist or as a pastor teacher. It's just in a cross-cultural context, sort of like a Texan coming to Connecticut. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. Matthew 28 sets down the parameters to go make disciples by means of baptizing that was related to evangelism and a sign that they had trusted Christ as Savior and teaching. Two means. Those are both participles of means. You make learners through evangelism and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Now, let's go to the next articulation of this chronologically, and that's in Acts Chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Well, we'll get to Acts chapter 1 next time. I want to take all of the, all of the Acts passages and build our understanding of missions from Acts at one time, and then we have to realize that Acts is only the beginning. It's originally titled the Acts of the Apostles, but it's truly the Acts of the Holy Spirit and establishing the early church. It goes through 28 chapters, but it didn't stop then. It's still going on, what the Holy Spirit is doing in expanding the church. And so next time we will go through and see the development of a missions and evangelism thrust in the book of Acts and then expand that down through history with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged with the importance of missions, taking the gospel to those who have never heard the important challenge to young people to consider this as a as a viable career option. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All that you need to do to have eternal life is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not a matter of moral reformation, bargaining with God, doing good, being involved in the sacraments or any other uh, human effort. It is simply a matter of trusting exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.